Did you ever look out at the world and wonder, what must God be thinking? Have you ever turned on the news and heard a report about another Black Lives Matter uprising taking place because of the shooting of a yet another black male, yet another unarmed person? Have you ever wondered why it is that children are being taken from their parents on the borders as they're fleeing for their lives, separated and in the midst of a bureaucratic mess? Have you ever wondered why there's yet another scandal going on in our country's political system, not the one from yesterday, but a new one today, why there's yet another mass shooting in one of those places that we said, of course it would never, ever happen here. You ever wonder what God must have to say about that? What God must think about that? In the midst of the persistent debacle that is life at the end of the second decade of the 21st century, have you ever wondered, is God still there? Is there a word from the Lord today? Is there a word from the Lord? I've heard it said time and time again that we're losing millennials in the church. We're losing young people who are becoming part of this group called the nuns i.e. they believe in God, but they don't believe in the church. They think that the church has lost its way, that it doesn't stand for the incredibly significant values that we see expressed on just about every page of Scripture, that it doesn't stand for the justice that's demanded, it doesn't stand for the liberation of all people that's demanded there. You ever wonder if the church reflects what Dr. King said, silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows, not concerned about what's going on outside the doors of the church. Often I wonder if the church has surrendered, if it's ceded its ground to the world and checked out on conversations about what God thinks about immigration about minority rights, about voting rights, about war, poverty, health care, the climate? Has it become so heavenly-minded that it is no longer any earthly good? Has it been so concerned about neutrality and a, war, a world torn asunder by the fierce partisan divide such that it can offer no godly critique to ungodly behavior for fear of being labeled? political? Has the church forsaken its responsibility to be a moral light bearing witness to a greater goodness and an advocate of us all striving for a higher standard? I think in part this is the fear that's behind this passage for today from the book of Deuteronomy. This passage was meant to assure the people whom Moses had liberated from Egyptian bondage, those whom Moses had led into the wilderness, those people who were still awaiting a better home, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
A nation defied by justice and equality for all. Sound familiar? That God was assuring them that God would not leave them without a word from the Lord. It was the promise of a Joshua who is to come in the short term. Others have read this as the promise of another Joshua, Yehoshua, Jesus, who would come after a while. Ultimately, it was a word of reassurance that the people of God would never be left without a prophetic witness. You see, the promise of a prophet comes to a people familiar with binary thought, good versus evil, blessing versus curses, reward versus punishment, and yet another binary divide, prophet versus king. In the Deuteronomic historian's work, kings were deemed to be the sons of God in this world. Kings were the God's hands in this world, wielding God's power. Kings exercised power over people, were charged to care for them, to maintain justice, to judge the people justly. And kings had what appeared to be seemingly limitless power, power to do good or power to do evil. Y'all remember Lord Acton's statement, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So kings could ensure that the land and its resources were distributed equitably or they could centralize wealth in the hands of a few. Kings could ensure that widows and orphans and aliens and poor people could survive and sustain themselves and overcome their circumstances and make themselves better, or they could take advantage of the people, demonize the poor, enslave them for their purposes. Therefore, God introduced into this equation another figure, the prophet figure. The prophets were to serve as the king's conscience. They were God's means of holding kings accountable to the will of the Lord, because otherwise they have seemingly unlimited power. The prophet was the checks and balances to the seemingly limitless power of the king, countering the king's power with witness, reminding them that there was someone greater than he, someone watching over him, someone whose will should be observed when the king forgot. There was an oppositional power relationship between kings and prophets that we can see at play in the Deuteronomic history, from First and Second Samuel to First and Second Kings, and even in many of the pre-exilic prophets' works, we see this sort of dynamic, the king's power versus the prophet's witness. This is even evident before there was a king. In First Samuel chapter 8, there we see Samuel arguing with the people about why they're asking for a king. The Lord says to Samuel, tell them what the king is going to be like. The king will take their land and take their crops and take their taxes and take their sons and take their daughters. And eventually they will end up the king's slaves. The king will centralize 
power, centralized wealth, overseeing oligarchy of elites, intensifying the wealth gap between the small group of haves and the increasingly large group of have-nots. Glad we don't know anything about that. In this regard, it was up to the prophet to remind the king and the people of what Ko Amar Adonai, what thus says the Lord. The prophet's job was to let people know that such kingly abuses of power were not right, were not authorized by God, were not in line with God's will. The prophet's job was to establish what Brueggemann has called God's alternative vision of what should be, not just what is. God's vision of what ought to be, not just what we see. The prophets served to foster an alternative narrative of what not only should be, but what could be if we're submitted to God's will, if we live justly, if we assured that everyone had at least enough. In a world dominated by the myth of scarcity and the tendency of hoarding, prophets were convinced that God had made abundance and that God mandated opportunity for all. God was not just raising up a prophet, it says in this passage, but God was raising up a prophet, Kamuni, Kamuka, uh, like Moses, like you. God was raising up a prophet that was like Moses. Now, many people have sort of rejected this notion. Moses wasn't a prophet. Moses is a lawgiver. Moses is the one who uh, proclaimed the law and liberated the people, but he's not a prophet. But if we look carefully at what it is that Moses does, you'll see that he is not only a prophet, but perhaps really an exemplar for what prophecy should be. He hears the word of the Lord directly from God and communicates it directly to the audience. His prophetic critique is offered to Pharaoh, the epitome of what a bad king looks like. Amen? His call for liberation and justice is actually fulfilled as he leads the people from Egyptian bondage on the path to freedom. And he's ultimately the principal lawgiver of the people. Moses does not just say that this is what you should do. Moses establishes what the baseline is. Moses doesn't just say that you should be just. He's the one that proclaimed Sedek, Sedek Tirdof, justice only, justice shall you pursue. Moses is the one that utters the criteria of those that we should always attend to. Widows and orphans and aliens and the poor and the sick and the afflicted. To raise up a prophet like Moses is to raise up a socially transformative figure who confronts and facilitates the conquest of the essence of illegitimate, kingly, hegemonic power and establishes the moral basis of a just society. You all get that? You see, Moses was the one who truly made a kingdom like God would want. Such a prophet not only hears and proclaims the will of God, she or he manifests the will of God in a transformed social order. 
begin to see why the people might want another prophet like Moses. Close your eyes for a minute and imagine with me. Don't go to sleep. Just close your eyes. Imagine a world with kingly power without prophetic balance. Imagine a world where wealth is centralized in fewer and fewer hands. One percent of people owning 40 percent of wealth. While the majority are forced to subsist with less, imagine a world where the poor are demonized, victimized, and blamed for their poverty, while the wealthy are valorized for their ability to hoard. Imagine a world where widows, we call them husbandless single mothers, and orphans, we call them fatherless children, and the sick, we deny them Medicaid expansion and affordable universal health care, and aliens, we call them illegals and separate them from their children. And the poor, we call them lazy and immoral and deficient and unmotivated, are left to fend for themselves and blamed for their own situation while the system protects itself. Imagine that world. You can open your eyes. Perhaps it's not that hard to imagine that world. You see, kingly power in our context is not lodged in the power of kings, but of government power and corporate power and wealthy, privileged, aristocratic power. And without the balance of the prophet, the prophetic witness, God's rebuttal to an increasingly unjust system is nullified. Worse, the if the potential prophetic impulse of the church is dulled by an attempt at neutrality, which Elie Wiesel says favors the oppressor and never the oppressed, if it's dulled by the cry for civility, which Dr. King notes allows the good people to remain quiet and complacent in the face of injustice, allowed to be nullified by the faulty vision of the separation of church and state that suggests the church only has to be concerned with spiritual, read, non-political issues, then societal injustices inevitably become rampant. Today, it is not hard to imagine a world where the prophetic voice has been silenced, sequestered to the back of our collective throats, neutered, rendered impotent. But God said, I am raising up a prophet. God will not leave God's self without a witness. God will not allow God's word to remain unheard. God will call a prophet to deliver Ko Amar Adonai, thus says the Lord, so that God's will is seen and that God's will can be strived for because God still has something to say about this world in this world where unfettered kingly power threatens to undo all, God is raising up a prophet. Perhaps that prophet will be found in an anointed few. People like Martin King as he fought for civil rights or Andrew Young and Jimmy Carter as they brought about moral leadership and governmental power. Or Bishop Michael Curry and Jim Wallace as they seek to reclaim Jesus or Duke's own Dr. William Barber and Liz Theo Harris as they enact a poor people's campaign, a national call for moral revival. Perhaps the prophetic voice will be found in them. 
Or perhaps the prophetic voice will be found in clergy inspired to live into the prophetic dimensions of pastoral ministry. Perhaps the prophetic vision will be manifest as clergy realize they've tended to emphasize priestly dimensions of pastoral ministry. How we do the rituals, how we pray, how we sing wonderful songs, how we take up offerings. Sorry to say it's pretty much what we teach them to do in seminary. And forget about the prophetic dimensions, bringing God's world to a world, word to a world in need of change. Perhaps the prophet will come as clergy awake and take seriously the concept that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that God should have a say in what goes on. Perhaps the prophetic voice will be found in them. Or perhaps the prophetic voice will be found in all of us. The Christian community who realize that we are all vested with God's spirit in a post-Pentecostal world, that we are all called to a priesthood of believers, or dare I say, a prophethood of believers, to live our faith in ways that challenge unjust powers. Perhaps the prophet will be manifest in a group of people who realize that we are those called to manifest the kingdom of God on earth Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? As it is in? Perhaps we are those called to manifest an already present kingdom. I remember Jesus said, if they tell you the kingdom of God is over there, don't go out there. If they say it's over there, don't go out there, for the kingdom of God is among you, within you all around you. Perhaps the prophet will be manifest in us as we come to realize the prophetic dimensions of our Savior, Jesus the Christ, who in Luke inaugurates his ministry with these words from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, our faith is prophetic at its core. Our vision of messianism and the gospel are predicated on confronting poverty, overcoming oppression, healing the sick, freeing the incarcerated. Our faith is prophetic from its origins, beginning as a movement of poor, Roman, oppressed, Galilean, Jewish peasants from forgotten rural small towns and villages Hungry people fed by Jesus, sick people healed by Jesus, unclean people welcomed into community by Jesus, alien people accepted by Jesus, poor people affirmed by Jesus, all of them marching together from town to town with Jesus manifesting the kingdom, the reign of God in the midst of an unjust world an alternative vision of what could and should be. This is the heart of our faith. If Dr. Barber was here, I might say, our faith begins as a poor people's campaign. I guess what I'm trying to say is that to be a Christian is to be prophetic, 
To be part of the Jesus movement, the church, when we do it right, is of necessity to be prophetic. God is calling us all to be prophetic as those in the likeness of Jesus who challenges the legitimacy of the faulty narrative that persists in this world, the story of the world as it is, and instead seeks to manifest a new narrative of a better world where God's will is the reality by which we live, the story of a world that should be, even better yet, a world that could be. And if we believe the end of the story, a world that will be. You see, this is who our God is. Our God is a just God, a loving God, a gracious God who cares for all of us equally, a concerned God who will not allow any of us to suffer needlessly, a watchful God who will not turn a blind eye to oppression, an intimate God who will come down to deliver those held in bondage, an on-time God who is constantly reminding us of another way of relating, where troubles don't last always and we shall overcome and people get to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And God is raising up a prophet. Might it be that we are that prophet, that the church is that peace, that place where Heschel's notion of the rage of God at an unjust world might find its expression might it be that we are those who are to ensure that thus says the Lord is heard, not just in churches, but also in city council chambers, not just in sanctuaries, but also in the U.S. Senate, not just in God's house, but also in the White House. Might it be that we are the ones who are to take God's message to the streets and continue the long march for justice that Moses began in the Exodus, that Ezra continued as he brought the people back from exile, that John continued as he brought the people to the wilderness to be baptized and to think of justice anew? That Jesus continued as he marched around the Galilee and marched to Judea and marched down the Mount of Olives and marched to the cross. Might it be the movement that King revived when he marched for human rights? Rights in Montgomery for the bus? Rights in Memphis that led to a bullet? Might this march that we are continuing be the one that Barber is trying to reenact as he leads a call for moral revival? And might that be what we are called to do to join the prophetic voices of this day who wish to ensure that kingly powers remember as they divide immigrant families, as they deem supremacists good people, as they undermine equal access to health care as they resegregate and underfund our children's schools, as they mass incarcerate black men, as they underpay and imperil the rights of women, as they marginalize the LGBTQ community, as they pit us against each other with divisive politics, 
as they centralize wealth in the hands of the wealthiest 1% while they demonize, demoralize, and dehumanize the poor. Might we be the ones to say that God is watching, that God is heartbroken, that God is raging, that God is waiting on us to do our part to ensure that God's voice is heard anew in this time. I've gone on too long. I need to end. I need to go to the cross. I was told yesterday by a well-meaning friend, make sure you take him to the cross, preacher. That's a common theme in Christian preaching. I remember another Duke alum who has stood in this pulpit a time or two, Steve Eason, disciple of Bishop Will Williman, who said many years ago, I'm really glad that Jesus was not executed by a gun or we'd have Christians across the world with golden guns hanging around their necks. We do seem to have an odd affection for the weapon used to kill our Savior, I'm just saying. But if we must go to the cross, perhaps today it's not only the one on which Jesus hung. For he said, Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. I hear in Jesus' words a charge, a responsibility that there's work for us to do. Though our faith may begin with Jesus taking up his cross, it continues as we learn to take up our own. Amen? Perhaps Dr. King says it best, progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability, but comes about by the tireless efforts and persistent work of those willing to be co-workers with God. What if we have work to do? What if we are not waiting on God to fix a broken world, but God has done God's part and God is now waiting on us to join the struggle as co-workers? God is waiting on us to be prophetic, on us to proclaim loudly God's word to a world that has grown deaf to it, on us to envision a more just world, on us to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. Let's end at the cross and take up our cross and shoulder our cross, and if necessary, die on that cross daily, being prophetic like Jesus. Amen? Amen. God bless you all.